Oh, that's me on. How's that? <laughs> It's very good to get some assistance. <laughs> uh, <clears throat> if you earn your living by hollering, as I do, um, it's good. Thank you very much. I'm sorry about that. <clears throat> Galatians chapter 6, verse 1. You know that Paul's letters, usually the first part is doctrinal in a letter, and the second part is practical. Well, we're into the, well into the practical section in chapter 6. Brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. But watch yourself, for you may also be tempted. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ. If anyone thinks he is something when he is nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions. Then he can take pride in himself without comparing himself to somebody else. For each one should carry his own load. <clears throat> Anyone who receives instruction in the Word must share all good things with his instructor. Do not be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature from that nature will reap destruction, and the one who sows to please the Spirit, from the Spirit will reap eternal life. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers." See what large letters I use as I write to you with my own hand. Those who want to make a good impression outwardly are trying to compel you to be circumcised. The only reason they do this is to avoid being persecuted for the cross of Christ. Not even those who are circumcised obey the law, yet they want you to be circumcised that they may boast about your flesh. May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. Neither circumcision nor uncircumcision means anything. What counts is a new creation. Peace and mercy to all who follow this rule, even to the Israel of God. Finally, let no one cause me trouble, for I bear on my body the marks of Jesus. The grace of our Lord Jesus Christ be with your spirit, brothers. Amen. It's a great chapter, isn't it? It's a chapter of the Christian doctrine of good works, largely. Um, Martin Luther said, Good works do not make a good man, but a good man does good works. And that's what Paul the Apostle is talking about here. It's about living righteously in Christian fellowship. It's about common sharing. Koinonia is the Greek word, common sharing. Um, and folks say, You're, I don't have much time for you do-gooders. You know, well, there are plenty of do-badders in the world. A few do-gooders shouldn't do any harm. Um, and the key verse, quite often with Paul, you can pick a verse that really can act as a hinge to the passage you're studying. And the key verse from the opening verses here, um, you'll find in the, 
verse 9. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. That's a good hinge for the whole passage. Let us not grow weary in doing good. And um, the first ten verses, I'll talk about doing good in various aspects. First of all, restoring the fallen. He says, brothers, if someone is caught in a sin, you who are spiritual should restore him gently, but watch yourself, or you may also be tempted. Um, The Old Testament has two definitions of sin. There's a abon bishorah, which means sins of ignorance, weakness, or error. And then the second grade of sins in the Old Testament is um, <laughs> awon bayad rama. Sins of a high hand means proud, defiant sins. And as far as we know, um, if you study the Old Testament sacrificial passages, and especially Leviticus, there is no provision in the sacrificial system of the Old Testament for the cleansing of a one by Yadrama, and sins of a high hand. It took the blood of Christ to deal with all kinds of sin, and you'll read about that in the letter to the Hebrews. And here he is talking about a particular sin, a paraptoma, which is um, it's stronger than sins of ignorance, weakness, or error. It's a deliberate act leading to judgment, a misdemeanor. Um, And basically, the message in the first two verses is restoration rather than condemnation. As Christians, we often specialize in condemnation and criticism. But here's a brother who's been overtaken in a fault, is the King James translation of it, a deliberate act. Um, And he says, you who are spiritual. So he's defining things. Not everyone can do this, but there are people whom God has gifted among the fellowship of his believers who can do this, who can do works of restoration. Um, Should you, he says, you who are spiritual should restore him gently. And he uses a smashing word. (laughs) It's used in the Gospels in Matthew chapter uh, 4 and verse 21 of Jesus walking beside the Sea of Galilee. And he saw some disciples, the King James Version says, mending their nets. The New International Version says, preparing their nets. Catartizoing is the word. Um, So what did fishermen do with their nets after they'd been out to sea? They first of all would wash the nets, I would think. And then would remove any debris uh, they've cleared out all the fish, <laughs> but they'll pick up debris uh, from the sea and they'll clean all the debris out their nets and then they'll look for holes and gaps that fish can get through and they'll, they'll actually physically make good the gaps with their string. And then they'll fold the nets and get them ready for action, you know. So that's the kind of image. Um, What does it mean? Well, it means when we're overtaken in a fault, 
Um, or if someone is overtaken in a fault and we're at the receiving end of their fault, we know about it, then here's what we should do. We should restore them. That's our aim, to restore them. Uh, it's used in Matthew, it's used here in Galatians, and it's used out with the New Testament, this verb, quite interestingly, for a dis- in the medical language, dislocate, re placing a dislocated limb back into its place. Have you ever come across anyone who's had a dislocated limb? I played football the first night of the holidays at Cullen one year, and I I brushed against a brother, and (laughs) as I ran past him, (laughs) imagine that, and he, he, he didn't put his arm out to save himself, and he dislocated his shoulder and had to go away to Bucky Hospital, and he waved this cheerily goodbye. He said, we're back to playing goal, boys. But he wasn't, and he, he was off work for six weeks after it, and I had to go and apologize to the guy and so on. It was good enough, I bought his tennis ticket, you know. <laughs> so he never got any tennis that fortnight. But it's, it's used in medicine of relocating a dislocated limb, you see. Well, the idea here is, if you've got a brother that's often overtaken in a fault, here's what you should do. You should try to get him back to his place of useful service in the body of Christ and sort of get him sorted out and cleaned up and ready for action in God's service. And that's a good work, isn't it? There was a, a, a missionary organization in, in Scotland and, uh, sorry, in Britain. It was, a, it was an old British guy, the guy who was at the head of it. Um, was for the whole of Britain, and he, he fell into a paraptoma, a sin, and uh, his vice president was a Scotsman, I know, I knew him, <clears throat> and they said, well, <clears throat> good for you, they said, uh, you'll now be president, this fellow were just, you know, dispensing with his services, and my friend said, well, he said, if you would let me deal with him, I think I could restore him. Give me six months. And he spent six months sorting this guy out, six months dealing with the fault that he'd fallen into. Um, He spent six months befriending him, and he got him back into his place as president for the whole organization all over Britain. And the man served God effectively for the rest of his serving life. And I think that's it that the, the aim is restoration rather than condemnation. <clears throat> um, however, Paul has got a warning here. He says, uh, watch yourself. You have to restore him gently. You have not to crow over him. Watch yourself or you also may be tempted. What is the temptation? The success can lead to the temptation of being big-headed and boasting about it, um, I suppose. In some cases, people would question whether somebody who's in the position of the pastor here and falls into a fault, let's say, in a sexual sin, um, perish the thought, brother. But um, uh, some folk would doubt whether he should be back up front as a frontline soldier again. I remember having an, an argument, well, a discussion with uh, one of my fellow Baptist ministers, 
And uh, <coughs> what had been said in the minister's meeting was that those who fell into sexual sin shouldn't assume they could go right back into church life as pastors. They would have to show works meet for repentance. And in, in conversation, this guy said, that was a load of rubbish, that stuff, you know. And I said, well, I actually think he understated the case. In my book, if that happens, I wouldn't regard myself as able to go back into full-time Christian service front line. If the people of God were willing to forgive me, I'd be quite happy to sit at the back for the rest of my life or to serve in some minor capacity in the church. Yeah, that would be my position. Oh, rubbish, he said. Have you never heard of forgiveness? I said, have you never heard of sin? I said, um, I quoted Bozo in the Anselm like I did to you. You have not considered how great a matter sin is. I said, think about it. You're a family man. You've sinned against your wife. You've sinned against your children. You've sinned against your church. You can no longer go into a house with the ladies on their own to visit. I said, the whole... And you've got to have God's forgiveness as well. Um, anyway, he came a cropper, I have to tell you. I'm sad to say. Um, and his family were deeply affected by it, especially since he had a handicapped child. So it, w it wasn't at all funny. Um, and so maybe some folk would think, and I would be one of them, that there are limitations here, but maybe not. Maybe I'm misunderstanding Paul, so you're free to make your own judgment about that. But I would say, watch out for yourself. Um, restore the fallen. Bear the burdens, verse 2. Bear ye one another's burdens. Carry each other's burdens, and in this way you will fulfill the law of Christ, which is that we love one another. And the word burden here in verse 2 is different from the verb in uh, verse 5, where it's translated load, fortunately. It's a burden in verse 2 and a load in verse 5. And they're different words. Um, in verse 2, it means a heavy load. Um, it means something that oppresses you and, and gets you down. And uh, it's good to get alongside other folk and bear their burdens. And some of us are better equipped by God for that than others. Some of us just couldn't do that kind of thing. But others of us can. Martin Luther says in his commentary on Galatians, Christians need broad shoulders and mighty bones to bear the burden. And so he says, bear one another's burdens and so fulfill the law of Christ and be a loving brother or sister to anyone who is burdened. Um, verse 5, a different verse, where it says, um, each one should carry his own load. A load is something appropriate to our capacity for carrying. You know, I dare, some, dare say some of you and some of, you know, I'm, we're, we're all different about how much we can carry. I mean, I remember once taking a job. Um, I couldn't get a job, so I went as a tatty hawker. You ever been a tatty hawker? I was a tatty hawker for one day, and the farmer said to me, would you like more money, son? And it was a pound a day in those days. He said, I'll pay you 26 shillings a day 
if you do another job for me. I said, fine, I'll do that. He said, well, report to the yard at 8 o'clock tomorrow morning. And I went to the farmyard, and my job was very simple. It was to, to stack hundredweight bags of potatoes three high all day long. I could hardly put out my hand for the 26 shillings at the end of the day. <laughs> and so um, sometimes I'm able to carry things that other folk can't. You can carry things that other folk can't carry. It's, you have an appropriate load. God doesn't overload us and bring us into terrible care about the burden that we have. Further down, now, it's a different word. It's uh, baros in verse 2 and fortion in verse 5. So we have to bear one another's burdens, and that's good. It's good when somebody comes alongside you and helps you to carry your burden. And then taking responsibilities, verses 3 to 5, he says... uh, If anyone thinks he is something when he has nothing, he deceives himself. Each one should test his own actions and not be comparing himself. It's not a competition you're in as a Christian. Um, Romans 12, verse 3, I like the New English Bible. I know what Ian Paisley said about it. Neither New nor English nor a Bible. But um, occasionally you can find a good translation. Um, And it says in Romans 12, 3 in the New English Bible, Think your way to a sober estimate of yourself based on faith. That's good, isn't it? Think yourself, think your way to a sober estimate of yourself based on faith. Straight self-assessment without engaging in the fruitless activity of comparing ourselves with others that we often do. Remember the Pharisee and the publican, Jesus' wonderful parable. I thank thee I'm not as other men are. I don't do that. You know, and even as this guy here, you know. And he, <laughs> uh, it's, it's terrible. There was a, a preacher in Boston. I'm away sidelining again. There was a preacher in Boston, and he preached on the parable of the Pharisee and the publican. And then he finished his sermon. He closed, he let's close in prayer, and he said, hey, Lord, we thank you we're not like that Pharisee. <laughs> Which was really meant he'd 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 missed the lesson entirely, hadn't he? Uh, So you've not to be like that. Um, You've to share the blessing. You've to take responsibility um, and share the blessing. Um, Verse 6. Teachers should teach in order to share. Mutual sharing and outward flow of blessing is required. And we must avoid both idol worship, the hearers, and isolationism, preachers. Uh, quite often they're six feet above contradiction, the preachers, you know, it's up there somewhere in the pulpit. Um, and you've not to worship the pastor. I know he's a great guy, but he would, he would say to me and to you, don't do that. You know, some ministers... I know one minister who left a church, and as soon as he left, about half a dozen families left. They were only there to hear him, you know. They weren't really interested in the everyday life of the church. Um, So, share the blessing, take responsibility, and mutual share. We must avoid both idol worship 
and isolationism. Teachers should teach in order to share. Um, and that's good. And I'm, I'm saying this because on Tuesday I'm having a visit from a fellow who wants me to teach him Hebrew. <laughs> I haven't taught Hebrew for five years. And if you don't teach Hebrew uh, regularly, you get rusty. And I'm scared I'm rusty for Tuesday for this guy coming. But he's desperately needing help. Um, he started a course and he's totally lost and he wants me to help him. So I said, well, you come, we'll have a, we'll have a coffee and have a chat and see if I can help you at all with your Hebrew course. <laughs> so this, this could be a long-term thing, you know. <laughs> um, so you teach. And I get great joy out of teaching somebody something like that, you know. Um, it's, it's good to be a teacher and because teaching involves you in the lives of others, you know. There was a saying amongst the school staff, uh, my mother gave me life. My teacher taught me how to live. <laughs> That's a bit of a swanky definition for a teacher. My teacher taught me how to live. In some cases, the life that the teachers had wasn't worth emulating. But it's, it's good. Being a teacher is good. We teach in order to share, um, which is very good. If you receive instruction in the Word, you must share all good things with your instructor. That's good. Very good. Um, and I've been very privileged, and so have you. The ministry is here. George Hossack, his name's in front of me here. George Hossack was a wonderful teacher. Those of you who knew him and remember him, he's a great man, terrific teacher, and a historical genius in a whole lot of ways. He had studied very hard and he could present very well. And you admire good teachers. I had a good, great teacher in primary school. In primary six and seven, Tommy Thompson was my teacher. A wonderful man. He used to sit in the desk with his feet in the front desk and read poetry to us with great feeling and emotion. And the thing that really got us were the, were the holes in the soles of his shoes. <laughs> As he put his feet up on the desk. And later on, his wife, read my account of him in the book and she phoned me up from Glasgow when I was in Inverness and we had a three quarters of an hour phone call in the course of which she said to me, I would just like to point out that at the time he had holes in the soles of his shoes, I wasn't married to him. <laughs> so, and then later on, uh, I had some good, really good teachers in secondary school. My history teacher was a great teacher. And my maths teacher, well, the one I had first, she was terrible. I always wanted to punch her because she, she pulled my ear and she grabbed you by the nose and she went round the blackboard pump compasses and jabbed you with them. <laughs> she wasn't a very nice lady. And she didn't even look nice. She had, she, instead of a ribbon, she had a bootlace tying her hair together. And then she went away and she was a bully. And then this wee man came a wee quiet voice, nasal kind of speaker, you know, with a toothbrush moustache and a hanky up my sleeve. And he, <laughs> he was a brilliant maths teacher. He would do the stuff in the book, the board. And then, although we had big classes in those days, he went round every single individual and sit down and be saying, do you understand this, Mitchell? You know, show me you understand it, you know, and he showed him you understood it. Right, I went and did a million examples. <laughs> And he was, he was terrific. And then later on, 
He had a very good teacher in a very good teacher at the London Bible College. Um, Ralph Martin and Donald Guthrie and Ernest Kevin and H. Darren Dermot MacDonald was my philosophy teacher. He might have been taught philosophy by an Irishman. Anyway, he was very good. <laughs> and he, I, I went to hear Martin Lloyd-Jones and John Stott and all these. And you're in debt to these folk. Um, later on in PhD studies, I had got through philosophy in the BD degree only by the goodness of God and the kindness of a wee brethren girl that loaned me her notes. Um, <laughs> but later on, I took a course in philosophy, and at the finish up, I could teach philosophy. This guy was brilliant, and it was, he taught me by tapes, by cassette tapes. You know, if you're a teacher, you should teach in order to share. Share the blessing. Reap the harvest, 70-10. Don't be deceived. God cannot be mocked. A man reaps what he sows. The one who sows to please his sinful nature will reap destruction. And the one who sows to please the Spirit will reap eternal life. And our old CE leader said to us, that's true not only in the spiritual life, it's true also in the normal, everyday life. You sow what you reap. And we can live lives which mock God. We can be lazy and indisciplined. Living is sowing, living is choosing, living is growing, living is reaping. And good and bad development occur in the bundle of life. But spirit-led motivation based on Scripture is probably the best recipe for everyday life, working for Christ in the everyday activities of life and work. We can reap the harvest. Let us not become weary in doing good, for at the proper time we will reap a harvest if we do not give up. Therefore, as we have opportunity, let us do good to all people, especially to those who belong to the family of believers. In our early life, well, right through life, we resolved to have an open home, and we discovered that we had a lot of guests and visitors. And there was one guy, there was this evangelist, came to Leaven when we were in Buckhaven, and he was a poor soul. Um, he'd been off six weeks, and he was in the Green Bombers, and he was always scratching himself, and his whole body was covered with sores. He had some sort of uh, eczema. And uh, the, the church he went to gave him accommodation in the gents' toilet on a camp bed, and a whole lot of them are living in big posh bungalows. Uh, and we used to smuggle them home. Gene did his washing. <laughs> which was not easy to do. And at the end of it, he, he said to us, he said, you've been very kind to me in giving me hospitality. Can I ask you a question? <laughs> I said, what is it, Jackie? He says, did you know I'm getting married? <laughs> and I said, no. He said, well, I wonder, can my wife and I come here for our honeymoon? <laughs> <laughs> And we didn't have two hapenies to rub together. It wasn't the, the sort of Paris hotel he was coming to, you know. And he, he came for a week of his honeymoon. You know, imagine I say, a guy came here for his honeymoon. <laughs> uh, it was amazing. Um, 
So reap the harvest. <laughs> uh, and I had the joy of uh, conducting his funeral service when he went home to be with the Lord. The only thing was he wanted a gospel invitation and a penitent form in front of his coffin <laughs> his funeral service. And, uh, but we couldn't do that because his grandchildren were busy dancing around the coffin during the hymns. It was quite unusual. And then there were about 350 around the graveside singing when the, uh, there's a land that is fairer than day uh, and by grace we can see it afar in the sweet by and by. So it's wonderful to be wrapped up with other people in the whole bundle of Christian life and reap a harvest of beautiful memories you have of these people in the Lord and in the relationship you had with them. So that's the first part of the chapter. Um, the second part, verses 11 to 18, have headed the cross of Christ and the marks of Christ. Uh, the passage spins around two axes. Number, verse number 14. Um, May I never boast except in the cross of our Lord Jesus Christ, through which the world has been crucified to me and I to the world. And verse uh, 17. Let no one cause me trouble, for I bear in my body the marks of the Lord Jesus. And the cross of Christ had featured in his thinking ever since his conversion. And there it was, the cross of Christ. May I never boast. We boast in a lot of things. I made a list of them in the book, if you care to look them up sometime. Let's see, pride of face. That's one folk. One set of folks, reason for pride, you know, mirror, mirror on the wall. <laughs> he was the fairest of them all. And you get folk that are very proud of their good looks and spend a lot of money in the burgeoning beauty industry, as I put it. You can have pride of face, that's the lookers. And then you can have pride of race, the bigots. These people are rabid nationalists and often talk down other races by inventing nicknames for them. The worst offenders are D.C. Thompson and company in their comics. Crouch, Huns, Nips, Spades, Spicks, and Wogs. Um, when we point the finger at others in order to exalt ourselves, there are three pointing at ourselves. I was pointed out once. So there's a pride of race, a pride of face, the pride of place. Jean's granny used to say, he's a climber. I mean, an ambitious person, you know. He's a climber. That was that him summed up. The climbers are the people involved in the cutthroat rat race for status. Um, programs like The Apprentice on television and films like The Firm make people aware of luxury cars, fine clothes, high-quality houses, six-figure salaries, and job promotions, you know. said, so how's your son getting on? Oh, he's getting on very well. He's got a BMW, you know. <laughs> and I think, well, there's more to life than having a BMW, isn't there? Surely. Anyway, <laughs> pride of grace is the worst of the lot. The Pharisees and their modern equivalents um, epitomized in Robert Burns' poem entitled Holy Willie's Prayer and Jesus' parable about the Pharisee and the tax collector. So here are the false teachers. What did they glory in? 
They gloried in circumcision. They gloried in, in having power over other folk in their spiritual walk with God. But Paul faced up to the cross, and he mentions the cross about 40 times in this 150 verses. The cross is mentioned six times. Um, he faces up to the cross as an antidote for pride. When I survey the wondrous cross on which the Prince of Glory died, my richest gain I count but loss and poor contempt <clears throat> on all my pride. And it took nothing less than the cross to purchase our salvation. And the victim went through demeaning, humiliating public disgrace. Um, the cross was not usually a fine piece of varnished wood, but a section hacked from a tree trunk so that the, the branches could be in a higgledy-piggledy way and increase the suffering of the victim. Cross crucifixions took place in public. public. The, the victim was stripped and the heat, the hunger, the thirst, and asphyxiation through physical weakness led to the welcome relief of death. The Acts preaching of the cross is restrained. <coughs> it's not like the seven stations of the cross and all that. Uh, <coughs> but Peter, for instance, says in the Acts preaching, you killed the author of life, <coughs> but God raised him from the dead. And then... The man, Paul Gerhardt, one of my favorite hymns is by Paul Gerhardt, who was the hymn writer of this Protestant Reformation. And he wrote this hymn in German, and it was translated by Charles, uh, John Wesley, translated it in the 17th century. Extended on a cursed tree, besmeared with dust and sweat and blood, see there the king of glory see, sinks and expires the son of God. Who, who my Savior this hath done? Who could thy sacred body wound? No guilt thy spotless heart hath known. No guile hath in thy lips been found. <clears throat> I, I alone have done the deed. Tis I thy sacred flesh have torn. My sins have caused thee, Lord, to bleed. Pointed the nail and fixed the thorn. <clears throat> The burden for me to sustain too great on thee, my Lord, was laid. To heal me, thou hast borne my pain. To bless me, thou a curse was made. My Saviour, how shall I proclaim? How pay the mighty debt I owe? Let all I have and all I am ceaseless to all thy glory show. Too much to thee I cannot give. Too much I cannot do for thee. Let all thy love and all thy grief graven on my heart forever be. Amazing words. And then he says in verse 17, I bear on my body the marks of Jesus, the stigmata of Jesus. Um, <clears throat> the marks of the nails. You know, sometimes we've got hymns about that, um, that we see God's love for us in the nail marks on his hands. Um, the nail marks were a sign, actually, of God's love above all. 
But um, <clears throat> so there are some folk who, think, who have actually said they reproduced the stigmata. Um, sometimes they appear in one area or a few areas of a person's skin, like the palm of the hands or the forehead, to replicate the marks made by the crown of thorns. Over 300 such claims have been made, including such people as Francis of Assisi. So what does Paul mean here? And we're talking, I was talking about William Bartley before we started the service. And he says, often a master branded his slaves with a mark that showed them to be his. So it was a brand mark. Most likely, Bartley says, Professor Bartley said, most likely what Paul means is that the scars and marks of the things he had suffered for Christ are the brands which show him to be the slave of Christ. In the end, it is not his apostolic authority he uses as a basis of appeal. It is the wounds he bore for Christ's sake. In one place in the letters, he gives a list of all the suffering he had gone through, the times he was stoned, the times he was beaten with rods, the times he was hungry and thirsty for the sake of Christ. And in, in Bunyan's Pilgrim's Progress, Mr. Valiant for Truth says this, and Paul says it too, really. My marks and scars I carry with me to be my witness to him who will now be my rewarder. Um, in 2 Corinthians 11, 23 to 25, he includes stoning, being left for dead in the gutter, five times being given 39 lashes, and three occasions he was beaten with rods. I think I was at the Keswick Convention, first of all, in 1966, and I met a man there called Richard Wurmbrandt. You ever heard of him? Tortured for Christ. He spent 13 years in a Romanian jail, and he was subjected to all kinds of indignity and torture. And he told me he had 13 wounds in his body inflicted by the communist people uh, who've tortured him. They turned day into night. They starved him. They denied water. Um, they tormented him. And I recently heard a wonderful story about him. Can I have time to tell this? I've got a few minutes. Okay. It was he was in solitary confinement and he was going to go, he thought he would go off his head. He kept repeating scripture that he'd memorized. But he decided that one of the ways out to, to, to catalog the time he was there, he would calculate seven days and he would call the seventh day the Lord's Day. And every Lord's Day in his mind, he would prepare a service he would have hymns and he would have prayers and he would have Bible reading and a sermon in the cell as if he was with a congregation. And what he didn't know, this is, I've only heard this recently, I have no means of authenticating this story, but what I heard recently was that the guards, some of the guards in the place were so affected by Richard Wurmbrandt's life and the way he re reacted to their treatment that what they used to do was when they found out about him doing this service, they used to go along and take their boots off and stand outside his, his room and share in the service, 
some of them used to, you know, came to the Lord through Wernbrandt. Wernbrandt was totally unaware of what these guys were doing. But he bore about in his body, like Paul, the marks of the Lord Jesus, the brand marks of a servant. And remember, although in the New Testament the word doulos means servant, it means basically bond slave in New Testament culture. In the Old Testament, it's not only a title of servitude, it's a title of nobility. Because God says, my servant Abraham, my servant Moses, my servant David. It's a title of nobility. And it's a great privilege to be a servant of the Lord Jesus Christ and to be involved on a daily basis in his service. Let's pray together. Lord, we thank you for these times together and we pray for your blessing on us as we <coughs> close up this study. We pray that you'll help us to hide your word in our heart that we might not sin against you. We pray you'll help us to bear the burden of other Christians. Some of them have terrible burdens to bear and we can get alongside them and help them as God enables us. And we thank you that you can give us each different capacities appropriate to our personality and our maturity as Christians that we can go uh, to restore people into useful service for Christ. And so we pray, Lord, that you'll help us to serve you to the hilt. We pray for the church and the congregation. We pray for Ross and his family, his wife, at this time. We pray for every member of the church and every, everyone who's ill. We think of Ian and Kathleen, and we ask for your blessing on them. And all like them who at this time are separated from normal worship attendance. And we pray for those who are in the fringe of the church's life. We pray for the young people that you may captivate them with the thought of the Lord Jesus and what he has done for them. And that you will bring many of them into faith, a living faith in the living Christ. So Lord, help us not to be weary in well-doing but to know that we will reap in due time if we do not faint. So hear our prayer and let our prayers come unto you for Jesus' sake. Amen.